How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, my name is Craig. This is JC. Hello. She's going to help me today. Is that okay? She's excited. JC's eight. Almost nine. Almost nine. <laughs> so we got a lot to cover today. We're going to read a lot of Bible. I hope that's okay. Bible's good. We're going to read a lot of Bible today. And um, we got a lot of ground to cover. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in. If you're used to my normal preaching style, it's probably going to be a little different, but I do believe that I have a word from the Lord for you. And so, why don't we just open with prayer, and then uh, and we'll get straight into it. Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given us. I thank you for every person that is here today and all those that are listening online or some other way. I thank you for the honor that it is to share your word and your heart with people and the, the weight of responsibility. Uh, we receive it humbly, and we ask together that you would speak today, that it would be through your word and through your spirit, that your truth is heard, understood, received, and responded to. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, we've been in this series called Grow. This is a very, very important series for Heart of the City Church. If you have not yet been around, then I would really encourage you to maybe go back and check out some of those messages online because this is not just another series for us. This is really a declaration. It's, it's really an invitation, not just for us to kind of tell you what we're doing as a church, but it's an invitation for all of us together to, to be a family and to move forward into the next season of our, our life together as a faith community together on the same page, going the same direction, walking in unity. How many of you know that unity is extremely important and unity is, the, is, is one of the primary things that the devil is going to try and take from us by sowing discord and disunity? And so unity is the, the way that Jesus says the world is going to know that God loves them and that God is for them and that Jesus was sent from God as when we're in unity, John 17. I didn't come here to preach about that, but I just want to remind you that what we're doing together as a church family in unity is so important. And so we've been, we've been sort of trying to indoctrinate you with this, that's a joke, not indoctrinate you, but we've been trying to present to you this, this picture of who we are and who we are as a people after God's own heart. We hope that you see yourself as a person, a man or a woman, who's after God's heart in everything that you do. And so we felt like we needed to give some, some meat to that and some definition to that. And so we've been talking about, for us, that we exist to help people know God. You heard that before? We exist to help people know God, find freedom. Have you heard that yet? Yeah. Discover purpose and make a difference. These are kind of the, the four things that we are trying to do as a church family. If you could throw that slide up. These are the things that we're specifically pursuing in terms of why we're saying we're here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho in 2019 and beyond is to help people primarily come to know God. It's the most important thing. It's your chief end. It's your, exi your entire existence is that you would know God in a real way. That's what eternal life is, by the way, is that we would know God and the only one that he has sent, Jesus Christ, John 17, verse 1. And so our existence is to help people know God. We want, we want to help people find freedom, which is not just being free from the addictions or the hindrances of the past, but it's finding freedom from those things that would hold us back and finding freedom to step into all that he's called us to in the future. We want to help people discover what their purpose is. I don't know if you know this or not, but every one of you has a divine design from heaven for you. 
And some of us know our design and know our purpose, but my guess is that if you don't know that yet, or even if you do, we've all at one point in time asked that question, like, why am I sucking air on this earth? Why am I here? What was I made for? You were made for something. And so together as a community, we're hoping and praying that God will give us grace and ability to help each other discern what it is that our purpose is and our design is. And then, of course, we want to take that design and take that knowledge of God and take this transformed life, and we want to go and make a difference. And you're going to hear a little bit more about that next week. It's this idea that, that we were actually designed not just to be consumers, but then when we produce and serve in this world, we're actually more fulfilled than if we just consume. Yeah. Amen. You'll believe that more next week, I hope. But for right now, uh, this message for today is an in-betweener message. It's a... It's the space between discover purpose and make a difference. You know, sometimes it's the space between the important things in our life that makes all the difference. It's the space between. Let me um, illustrate it this way. I, I need to actually just read a, a passage in Romans chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you could turn there. But uh, this passage that I'm going to read, it really deserves to be preached all by itself and it's an amazing truth, but what I, what I really need to do is just kind of extract a principle from this passage as a framework for the rest of this message. And I'm not going to tell you the subject of the message quite yet, this in-betweener message. Um, but let's extract this principle together, and you'll see what I mean in a second. Right here in the book of Romans, we have the Apostle Paul writing probably his greatest theological work to the church in Rome. He's describing for them the reality that they live in based on the reality of heaven. He's describing for us what it is that our existence actually is in the person of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross through his death and his resurrection. He's describing these amazing truths that you and I have the privilege of benefiting from. And then what he's doing is he's sort of posing these questions that we might ask, and then he's dismantling the incorrect answers and establishing the correct answers before we would even ask the question. And so he's doing this, and right here in Romans 6, he does it again. He says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? See, what he's done is he's described that grace is poured out upon us and it covers every sin. And in light of the law and in light of sin, grace has become even greater. And so he poses this question, should we sin so that grace would abound even more? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death? Now I want you to notice what he's starting to talk about is our reality. Do you not know? Do you understand? Do you comprehend that when you were baptized into Jesus Christ, the literal reality is that you were like put under the grave with him, buried with Christ. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the reality. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's the reality. So that we no longer are to be enslaved to sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also be raised with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death, uh, death no longer has dominion over him. That's the reality. For the death that he died once to sin, uh, once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now listen to this. Verse 11, this is very important. He just got done telling us all about our reality in Christ. That because of what he's done already, it's accomplished, if we are in him, then we have also already been put to death and we've already been raised to the newness of life and we are actually dead to sin now. And yet he still says this, so you also must consider yourselves. Say this with me, consider yourselves. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let sin not therefore reign in your mortal body or make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God for those who have been brought from death to life, uh, for your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now again, this passage deserves to be preached. I don't have time to preach it, but I just wanna point out this, this fact from this text, this, this principle that I'm gonna draw from this text, that our reality in Christ is that we were dead, crucified with him, raised to life with him, and we no longer have to be slaves to sin. That's actually the reality. Right here. But the space between our reality and our response is the place of consideration. It's what happens in here. You and I both know that even though we don't have to give ourselves over to sin anymore, we still have the opportunity to do it if we choose. Right? The scripture tells us our reality is that we're dead to sin, but you and I both know that we choose it all the time. The truth about our salvation is this. If we are in Christ, we no longer have to sin. We at least have the opportunity not to. And that decision lies in the space between. This is a principle that's echoed all throughout the scriptures. That there are certain realities that are, as it were, imputed upon our life, that they are true for us. It's, it's an actual reality in which we stand it's a position in which we stand, and yet we also have to consider ourselves, like Dave, one of our elders, said, to actually possess our possession. We have to consider ourselves to obtain and believe and actually grasp onto something that we actually have. We need to believe it inside, and that turns into us walking it out. And so when we talk about discovering our purpose and making a difference, I want to address the space between. And so today, my assignment is to preach a, a sermon on leadership. Leadership is the theme of this message. And I thought to myself, there are some really great leadership gurus out there, and there's just no way that I have enough time or ability to, to teach on leadership the way that Craig Groeschel can. By the way, if you want some really great leadership teaching, you should follow the Craig Groeschel Leadership Podcast. It's amazing. You can read like one of John Maxwell's 1,800 books that he's written on leadership. It's all good, right, Bob? You probably read every one of them. <laughs> Sam Chand has some great stuff. My assignment today 
is not to give you the best techniques of leadership and all of those things. My assignment today is to address the topic of leadership through the lens of consider yourself. Consider yourself. I came here today to inform you that there is a reality that you have in Christ and that whatever response you're going to make based on that reality, a big part of that is gonna be found in this space between where you either do or do not consider yourself to be what God has told you that you are and to let that translate into the action that he's called you to. Have you all ever heard of a guy named Judah Smith? You have? I mean, no, no, no. No, you haven't, okay. Don't lie on stage, you're a preacher. There's this pastor named Judah Smith. He's, he's out of Seattle. Uh, his, his dad, Wendell Smith, and his mom, they planted a church called City Church in Seattle a number of years ago since Wendell has passed from cancer. And, and Judah, if you don't know who he is, uh, he's, I would consider him to be one of the most influential um, pastors and preachers of our time. He's spoken on the biggest stages all around, this, all around the world. He has a great deal of influence. He's, he's the chaplain for the Seattle Seahawks. He's, he's Justin Bieber's pastor. He's, he's doing really great things. Now, don't get, don't get me wrong. I'm really not here to like brag about Judah Smith. My, my point in saying all that is I just want you to grasp that this person has accomplished really great things and he stands on some of the biggest platforms that this world has to offer. And I don't know him personally, I've never met him, but from what I've heard from multiple sources is that at the same time, he is one of the most humble people. But if there's, if there's one thing that I have felt from afar just observing his life is he comes off to me as somebody that's, that's pretty confident and he knows exactly what God's called him to do and he's walking it out. And so what struck me is when I heard this interview that he was in, somebody asked him, hey, would you tell me a little bit about your dad and maybe what's, what's the greatest thing that your dad did for you? And I heard Judas say, you know, the greatest thing my dad did for me is every night when he was tucking me in for bed, he'd come into my bedroom and he'd look me in the eyes and he'd say, hey, Judah, you're important. People love you and they want to know what you have to say. And I was like, oh, that's good. I'm stealing that. So I went home and I started and I started going to my kid's bedroom at night. I said, "Hey Parker, hey JC, I just want you to know you're important and people love you and they want to know what you have to say." And night after night I would do that and then Parker's like, I start to say it to him and he's like, "Ah, I already heard it. I don't want to know." Ah. I'm like, "I know you heard it, kid, but I got to get it deep inside you." So then being the person that I am, I was like, hey, there's not enough definition of this, so I needed, to add, I needed to add something to this, give it a little bit more definition. And so I started going in, I said, hey, JC, you're important, people love you, and they want to know what you have to say, and you know why you're important? You're important to build God's kingdom. Build God's kingdom. Come on, that's good, right? That's good. But then I had to repent. because I was extremely convicted that I had got it wrong. Not all the way wrong, just primarily wrong. (laughs) Because I was sending a message to my kids that their importance 
had to primarily do with what they were going to do. And the Lord was like, that's not why they're important, at least not first. And so now when I go in, I say, hey, Jay, you're important. And you know why you're important? Because of who I am. That's right. And who are you? Uh, JC. <laughs> and who's JC to God? God's daughter. That's right. My son, my daughter, I need you to know you are important and has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with who you are. And by the way, people love you and they want to know what you have to say. And then you're important. To build God's kingdom. That's right. And we are Browns and Browns are? Leaders. Leaders. All right. Head back to class. Put your hands together for... Okay, bye, JC. <laughs> bye, sweetie. <laughs> She's like handshaking everybody on the way out. <laughs> so now that she's gone, here's the thing. I can teach her how to memorize what it is that I'm saying to her, but it's it's in the consideration that those words and that memorization is going to become the reality. Now, I want her to hear it from me, her father, every single day because I know that even in my own life that it's not the battles on the outside that have been the hardest battles to fight. It's the battles on the inside. That even though I've accomplished some things in this world that the biggest struggles that I've had have been struggles of insecurity on the inside. Knowing that I am just like Adam and Eve, that the voices that I listen to, if they're any other voice than God, then I'm, I'm, I'm just along with them committing the first sin of humanity. That is, it was a sin to choose to listen to another voice of truth, another reality than the reality that God spoke over their life. And I know that I've, I've suffered from such insecurity on the inside and fear and doubt. And it was, it was, it's affected my response because I've struggled on the inside, the space between, to embrace the reality. I've struggled to actually consider myself to be what God says I am and let that consideration, that grasping, that true belief change what I actually do. And so here's the reality that we could have somebody like J.R. Rennie in the Brush Fire small group that we have, we could have somebody like that go through a thousand question te test and spend hours with you describing to you your divine design. But it's not until you consider yourself to embrace all that God says about you that it's ever going to translate into making the difference that he's called you to. It's the space between. And I came here today to let you know that you're important because of who you are. And who you are, if you have Christ living in you, is a leader. 
And so I want to look at one of the greatest leaders of all time. His name is Moses. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture again. I hope that's okay. And if, uh, if you're maybe a little unfamiliar with, with the Bible, you haven't heard the stories before, that's okay. Let me address the question of who is this Moses? Well, history will tell us that Moses is one of the greatest leaders of all time. History tells us that Moses has had some of the greatest influence, not only on God's people, but on all of history of all time. He's, he's one of the greatest leaders. History shows us that Moses went into Pharaoh's palace, performed signs and wonders and miracles in front of him, that Moses led two and a half million Israelites through the parted sea, around the desert, not once but twice to the edge of the promised land. History shows us that Moses was a great and mighty leader. In fact, Moses' name appears in the, new, in the entire Bible 796 times. According to Moses himself, he's actually the most humble person to ever live. So, he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, his, his name appears 80 times in the New Testament. His name appears more than Abraham, the father of faith, more than Isaac, more than Jacob. In fact, Moses' name is only, uh, appears less times than Jesus himself. Even yet, in the New Testament, Jesus is compared to Moses, not the other way around. Moses was a great and mighty leader. You and I know that history shows us that he did great and mighty things in leading a people out of slavery into the promised land. But today, I didn't come to talk about all of his strengths. I didn't come to point out all of the techniques and the, the great lessons that we can learn of his leadership. I came that we might find encouragement in his struggles. And so where we find ourselves in the text today in Exodus 2, uh, verse 23, is that Moses was raised uh, actually in Pharaoh's house, but then when he was 40 years old, he saw an Egyptian uh, that was harassing an Israelite, and he killed that Egyptian. And then he realized that Pharaoh heard about it, the people knew about it, and he had to run for his life. And so he ran far, far away to a place called Midian, and that's where we pick up. And as we read this text... I want you to notice the verbs or the actions. What were the actions of the people and what were the actions of God in response to the people? This is what it says in Exodus 2, 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt had died and the people of Israel groaned. That's their action. They groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw his people and God knew. I want you to know that when we cry out to God, even if you don't feel like God is close to you, even if you don't feel him emotionally and you're not getting that Holy Spirit high and you just wonder, is God even there? I want you to know this morning that we have a God who is not a distant deity. He is close. He is Emmanuel. He is here with us. And we have a God that hears you. We have a God that sees you. We have a God that remembers you, even if you don't feel it. And we have a God that cares about you. That's who God is. Their cry rose to him, and he heard them, and he saw them, and he remembered them, and he came. Chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. 
And he looked, and behold, the bush was not burning, or the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why is this bush not being burned up? And the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, and God, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take off the sandals of your feet, the place you're standing is holy ground. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to notice that the first way that God defines himself is in terms of relationship. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That he ties himself to the relationships that he has. That's who our God is. He's a God of relationship. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry uh, because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down. That sounds like Jesus to me. Sounds like Jesus to me. That God knew when we were crying out, because of our slavery, when we were crying out because of our brokenness, we were crying out because of our sin and being lost, separated from him, just left to our own ways. God heard us and he came down in the person of Jesus and he came down in this time. It says, I've come down, verse eight, I've come, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of all the ites. You can read them on your own time. Verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to the Pharaoh to bring out my people. You see, when God hears and sees and remembers, and when he comes, he often doesn't come to all of the people. He often comes to a person. You ever notice that? God could have gone to Pharaoh himself. God could have walked right into Egypt himself. God could have destroyed every temple that they had himself. But God, when he came, he came to a leader. He wanted to send a leader. He's asking a leader to have a response to his, to his showing up and to say, I will go and I will do exactly what you asked me to do. This is what God does. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said this to God, who am I? Who am I? Who am I that I should go? And with those three words, he poses one of the most dangerous questions ever asked, and it's the same question that you and I ask all the time. Yeah, I've heard sermons on leadership before, but who am I? Who am I? And we have reasons for our insecurities, don't we? We have reasons for our fears. We have actual real reasons, things that hold us back from living in this free life, this joyful life, this abundant life that God's called us to. We have actual reasons that would hold us back from our leadership. Moses had some too. He might have been filled with insecurity and fear because of his sin. 
Exodus 2.12 reveals to us that he killed somebody. You know what it feels like to have sin weigh on you, don't you? The guilt and the shame of the things that you've done in the past, it's a very real thing. It might be the thing that's holding you back from really embracing the reality that God's called you to. It might be the thing that's holding you back from making a difference, from, from feeling like you could even be a leader. I bet Moses felt that too. Maybe it's rejection. Exodus 2.14 shows us that when he went to two of his brothers who were fighting with each other, and he's like, hey, why are you guys fighting against each other? And they looked at him and they said, hey, who made you ruler and judge over us? We saw you kill that Egyptian. You can't speak to us. And he realized, oh my goodness, they know my sin, and now they're rejecting me, and yeah, I'm a nobody. And it's their voice from, from 40 years prior that he probably had ringing in his head that he was not the ruler or judge or authority over these people. So when God shows up and says, I'm going to send you back to them, he might have been thinking, oh, no, 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 I'm a nobody. He might have been thinking about how he was in trouble. Exodus 2.15 shows us that Pharaoh was coming after him. For all we know, Moses probably had no idea that that Pharaoh had passed on. For all we know, Moses thought that they were still chasing him down, trying to seek his life to take revenge over him. Maybe it's distance that held him back. Maybe this is his geographical location. The research that I did showed me that Midian was 6,000 miles away from Egypt. That when Moses had committed that sin at age 40, he ran far, far away. And here, it, here he is, he found himself 6,000 miles away on the side of a mountain and God shows up. And he might have been thinking, who am I? I'm just a nobody from nowhere. I live in Athol, Idaho. <laughs> live on the side of a hill. What good can come from North Idaho? Yeah, they said that about Jesus too, right? You know, we're not in L.A. or New York or Paris, but that doesn't matter. It's not about where you're from. And you know what? If we consider ourselves to be nothing because we're from North Idaho, then we probably will be nothing. But if we consider ourselves to have the spirit of the living God inside of us, then we might just change the world. My guess is there's some people that lived in a little town called Redding, California, that just thought to themselves, we don't need to be in L.A. to change the world. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to do something powerful right here. And now people come from all over the place to Redding, California. And I just, and that's great. I'm glad what they're doing. But I'm just here to say, you know what? The spirit of the living God lives in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, too. We don't need to go to Reading or anywhere else. He wants to do something right here. But do we consider ourselves to have the same spirit that Bill Johnson has? Because we have him. That's our reality. I digress. Maybe it's his age that made him feel insecure. He was 40 when he left Egypt. He was 80 when God showed up. 80? You ever think about that? For the longest time, I didn't even, I just assumed, you know, he was probably like ripped and lean in his 20s when he went back. He was 80. He might have been thinking, I'm just old and washed up, God. I wonder if some of us in this room feel that same insecurity. I'm just convinced because of what I've already tasted and felt in my life that, that there, if I'm younger, the devil's gonna try and convince me you're not old enough yet. If I'm middle-aged, like I am now, well, you're, you're too old for the teenagers and college students to look up to you, and you're too young for the adults to look up to you, and you, you're not there yet. And if you're, my guess is that when I'm older, he's going to try and convince me that I'm old and washed up and unqualified. Maybe it's your age that's making you feel like you can't really, I don't know. 
Maybe it was his current accomplishments. I'm just a shepherd. Yeah, I know I used to be in the palace, but I'm just a shepherd now. Isn't it interesting that you and I, oftentimes, we, we, we consider the value of our identity based on the things that we either do or have done or the things that we think we might do. You know, when people ask you, like, you know, who you are, oftentimes we talk about what we do, our job or our career or whatever it is that we feel like gives us value. When really who we are is not primarily about what we do or how much money we make or the job that we have. Who we are is our identity inside. But he might have been feeling that. Like, I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a nobody. He might have been feeling like, I don't have any authority. In fact, he says that to God. If I, if I do show up to them, who am I going to say sent me? And God said, you know what? Even though you're asking me, who am I? Tell them that, that I am sent you because that's the only name that matters. When you go, tell them, I am who I am, sent me. Maybe he just had fear and disbelief, lack of ability. Maybe it was his race. Maybe he just didn't want to. He was uncomfortable. Maybe he didn't have enough money. And maybe he thought, I wonder what school my kids are going to go to when I get to Egypt. There's so many reasons that he probably had to feel insecure, unqualified, and fearful about this invitation that God was giving him. My guess is that you resonate with at least one or two of those. And what I hope that the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will accomplish in you today is to convince you that what he's called you to do in making a difference in this planet, in being a leader and all that that's gonna entail for you is not based on your age or your, your past rejection or even your sin or your distance or your accomplishments. It's not even based on your, your giftings and your abilities. It's based on the reality of who you are. who you are. I don't know how many of you are in this room. My guess is maybe 300 and three to 400 people in this room. And what I really would love to do is just take the time to walk around in every aisle and just grab you on the shoulder and say on behalf of our Heavenly Father, looking into your eyes, you're important because of who you are. And who you are is a son of God. And you're important because he, he created you to build his kingdom. You're important. I know a sister over here, she had somebody tell her that she's like an Esther. Look, listen, that's your reality. That's what God has already said about you. Right? But it's the space between that prophetic word and your destiny. It's the space between where you consider yourself to be an Esther. Right? That's, that's the reality that you live in, like it or not, accept it or not. That's who you are. He designed you to be a powerful woman of God. And you know what? It's in your consideration of that promise. It's in your embracing of that, of that prophetic word as to what's going to happen with the rest of your life. Yeah. 
right? So embrace it. And I wish we had time and the ability because this is not a generic word that, you know, we've all heard sermons and it's just preached to the masses and it's a big crowd and you don't think that he's talking about you, but he's talking about you. And you. And you. And you're important. And has nothing to do with what you do. You're important because of who you are. And by the way, Jesse, people love you and they want to know what you have to say. And we are Jesus people. And Jesus people are leaders. Now here's the reality. If you have the spirit of God living inside of you, you are a leader. You don't have to acknowledge it. You don't have to you don't have to respond to it, but that's the reality of the situation. Whether you know your design, whether you know your purpose yet and how that's gonna play out in your career or whatever, all of those things, whether you sort of know all the pieces of that, know this today. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, your reality is that you're a leader. Now here's my definition of leadership today, influence. There's a lot of definitions out there and that's mine. Every single one of you has influence with at least one other human being that's breathing air. Your reality is that God has shown up in your life, called you important because of who you are. That's your reality. The response that he has for you is all the things that he's designed you to do to make a difference and to build his kingdom on this planet. But it's the space between. It's this moment right here where you have the opportunity to consider yourself, to embrace who it is that God says you are, to decide, I am going to once and for all ignore what that person told me back when I was 15 about myself. My identity is who he says I am. And my response and what I do is going to come out of that identity. So I want to close with just four thoughts. Four thoughts in regards to leadership. Just to sort of solidify what I've already basically been saying. Leadership is, number one, leadership is internal, then it's external. Leadership is internal, then it's external. Leadership is how you view yourself on the inside, and then it's what comes out of you on the outside. It's not what you do that makes you a leader. It's not a title next to your name. We've all seen people that have the title of being a leader, and they weren't really leaders. And by the way, you don't need any title to be a leader because it's who you are. It's internal, then it's external. Leadership is who, then do. It's who you are, then it's what you do. Number three, this might be the most important one in our current culture. Leadership is character, then gifting. You ever notice that character and integrity is not one of the spiritual gifts? It's not like some of us were given character and some of us weren't. When it comes to character, when it comes to temptation, when it comes to sin choices, we're all in the same boat. 
Some of us might have different giftings and ability, natural abilities than others, and you might, be, you might be insecure because of your abilities or lack thereof. Well, you know what? You don't, have to, you don't have to wonder if God desires character and integrity for your life. He does. By the way, when you're baptized into him, you are baptized in his death, and you are raised in a new life with Christ so that you no longer have to be a slave to sin. You have the power and ability to live the holy life that God has called you to. Come on, we know in our society, we have coming at us a thousand miles an hour temptation at every angle. Friends, I want you to know, you have the choice to be a man or a woman of integrity. And actually, the truth is, it does not matter how gifted or good at anything in this world you are. If your gifting takes you somewhere that your character can't keep you, you will fail yourself and you will hurt everybody around you. And so if you do have big desires of things that you know that God has called you to, in the space between, until God puts you on that platform, work on your character. Me too. Lastly, it's reality, then it's response. Just remember this, that if we're trying to do the works and the good things and the make a difference and the lead the Bible study and the serve in the church and we're trying to do the things for God, first, we're gonna kill our spirit. God has all those things for us, but it has to be in the right order. We have to embrace the fact that we are accepted by God and it has nothing to do with what we do has everything to do with, with what Jesus has already done. You just need to know this. This is, a, this is a, a theological truth you have to get. When God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees you through the lens of the cross and he literally sees you with the perfection with which he sees his son. And you and I, we beat ourselves up because of guilt and sin and this and that and all the things that Moses struggled with. We beat ourselves up with it but here's the thing. You gotta remember this. Conviction leads us to repentance, which brings us closer to God, and guilt from the devil takes us further from God. So just analyze if your guilt from your sin in the past is actually leading you to turn from God, it's not from him. You need to acknowledge that God is forgiving you and washing you, and now you are righteous to walk in all that he has for you. And all of the works that he's asked us to do have to be a response to the reality of who we are.